Here is the scariest verse in the entire Bible. Matthew 7, 22. Jesus says, Many will say unto me that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out many demons, and in your name perform many signs and wonders? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. See, Jesus says that when he returns, that some people who call him Lord and Master will say, Jesus, look at the things we did for you. Look at the signs. Look at the wonders. Look at all the miracles we performed. And Jesus says, but I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. You can't work your way into the kingdom. You need to know me. You need to have intimacy with me. You need to have a relationship with me. Your signs, your wonders, all the great things that you did for my kingdom, they mean nothing unless you know me, unless I have your heart, unless we're in an intimate relationship. And now here's what I want to do. I want to take what he just talked about intensity, right? But, but I do, I want to take what he talked about as a way to talk to you about First John. But to do it, I first need to talk to you about the book of Proverbs. So stick with me here and follow the thread that we are stretching. Who here has heard of the Old Testament book of Proverbs? Cool. This is going to make it easier if you have not. It is this great book that you will find in the Old Testament that is made up of, guess what? Proverbs. One line snippets of wisdom. And in fact, you'll often find a lot of um, reading plans, Bible reading plans that say, do, do like a proverb a day or a chapter of Proverbs a day. I've seen like rip-off calendars where it's a proverb a day. When people don't know what to read in the Bible, but they know I need to start somewhere, and let's face it, parts of the Bible are really, really boring, where they often tend to go is Proverbs, because there's these little maxims, these memorable phrases, these ideas that you can take away and fairly easily apply to life. I love the book of Proverbs, but let me zoom out. And I want to talk to you about an aspect of Proverbs that's often missed, the superstructure of Proverbs that ties it all together from being just a bit of isolated phrases. The book of Proverbs is set in the context of an older man speaking to a younger man. More specifically, it is a father speaking to a son. You'll find this right away in the beginning of Proverbs. So, all of the advice that is being given is being given from the perspective of this older man who is trying to instill it in this younger man, probably someone who is in their late teens or early 20s, to give them the wisdom that is going to be spilled out. Now, by young man, this would certainly include young woe man too. All right? So... As you hear this, ladies, understand that this is advice for you too. But because it is coming from the perspective of a father to the son in the actual book, that's how I'm going to talk about it today. Ladies, look, us guys know that you are the smarter gender, all right? So I am highly confident that you are going to be able to translate the pronouns effectively as I go along to make it make sense to you. 
So Proverbs is advice from a dad to a son. From a dad probably about my age or maybe a little bit older, someone in their late 40s or arguably 50s, to a son who is in his late teens or maybe 20s. And what dads my age know about sons that age is that there is one single motivating factor in their life. Girls. (laughs) Sex. Love. Who will I end up with? Who will I be with? Who's going to notice me? Who's going to want someone like me? I think Proverbs opens this way because it knows that this kind of approach will get a young man's attention. Sons, us dads know that the reason you go to the gym so much is to look good for her. We know that the stupid things you do are there to try to impress her. We know that you are trying to navigate the terrain of trying to figure out how to interact with this strange creature who captivates your being and have been doing so since you've been pulling her hair in fourth grade because you just haven't figured out how to impress her, get her attention, or interact with her yet. We know that you're racked with insecurity around her. That this very creature who intoxicates your being, leaves you just kind of numb or paralyzed or unknowing about how to relate. And for you young ladies in the room who are wondering why they act that way, well, take this to heart. This is the wrestle they're going through it. A father my age knows this because we were once young men that age too. But now because we're this age and are no longer a flaming bag of hormones and testosterone, we can speak from experience with a sense of sober-mindedness hoping that you will somehow listen to the wisdom that we want to impart, but simultaneously knowing that you're probably listening to no more than 10% of it, and that fundamentally, like every man before you, need to make your own mistakes for yourself. Fathers, or the father in Proverbs knowing this, Situates the whole book. The whole book is situated from this father telling his son about two different kinds of women. He does this because he knows that by talking this way, you might just listen to him. Proverbs starts by talking about the first woman. And I'm going to put a picture here on the screen just to help serve as an anchor. But I guess any person would do that you find 
attractive or that captures your heart. Here's an example. It's from the movie She's Out of My League. I thought it was telling. Just gorgeous. She's intoxicating, and the father tells this son about this girl who is so out of his league, about what this girl is like. She's good. She's faithful. She'll be true. She's a person of character and integrity. You know what? This girl, if she's in your life, she is actually going to make you better. She is going to make you more of the man you want to be. She is going to draw the best out of you. You are going to see her and she is going to capture your heart and you are going to wonder in your heart, how can some chump like me get a girl like that? You are going to be around here. Your buddies are going to go, she's with you. And you're going to go, I know, right? (laughs) She is going to be the girl of your dreams. She's going to be more than the girl of your dreams. She is going to be beyond what you ever dreamed you thought you could find or have in a girl. And she is going to give herself to you. The father starts by talking about this kind of girl. And then he talks about another one. And she's also captivating, pretty intoxicating, but in a different kind of way. She doesn't really look like the other girl, but wow, she really grabs my eye. She doesn't act like the other girl, but there's something about that that's exciting. There's something mysterious about her, even forbidden. And the forbiddenness only seems to heighten the enticement and the seduction I have towards her. The father goes on to talk about how this girl will ruin your life that she will not be good. And that what seems so amazing and exhilarating in the moment will only lead towards regret. That she will not bring out the best in you, but pour the worst on you instead. That she will not give herself to you, but take and take and take until there is nothing left of you to give. Proverbs is actually situated from beginning to end with this kind of motif. A father telling his son about two kinds of women. And of course, whatever literal truths can be extracted about the lesson of women in Proverbs, or men for you ladies, they're metaphors for something more. They're metaphors for the wisdom and way of God and that which is antithetical to it. 
In other words, they're metaphors for God's law, commands, decrees. The way God views right and wrong and how he wants you to conform your life to it. They are metaphors for the way of God if you're with me. The way of light, the way of life, and another way that is contrary to it. A way that leads to nothing but darkness and death. Incidentally, it's fascinating that when you get to the Apostle Paul, he warns people that oftentimes the devil will masquerade as an angel of light and that which you think may be the way of God may in fact be the way of darkness in death. In other words, what the Apostle Paul warns is that the one that you think is the way of God might not actually be the way of God at all. And the one that you didn't think is the way of God actually is. So that you can't judge a book by its cover. You have to look more deeply than just the surface of the command, which, as valuable as it is, comes with it with an undergirding of a way itself. And these two women, again, are metaphors. And the reason the Father uses this metaphor is because when it comes to things like the way of God, the commands of God, and obeying God, He wants you to be intoxicated with it, captured with it, and infatuated with it like a young man is with a pretty girl. This is where I think Christians miss the entire boat. We see the commands of God as something negative, as something bad, as something unattainable. We write them off as drudgery. That's not how the Old Testament thinks. No, the commands of God are something that should infuse your soul, capture your heart, that you pant after and pursue with all your being. Just like this subtle, intoxicating, beautiful creature called female does to a man in his teens or 20s or beyond. Are you with me? This is how the Bible will talk. I should have learned a lesson from Todd last week. I should have done a survey. That was a lot of fun. We need to do more of that. But I'm just going to kind of do one verbally right now. Anyone here know what the longest chapter in the Bible is? Anyone know? Who, no, don't shout it out. But if you think you know Would you just own it? Because I want to get a sense of the room here today. Okay, we've got like 10 people afraid of their hands and five more who think they know. Someone want to shout it out? Psalm 119. Psalm 119. It is the longest chapter you will find in the Bible. And do you know what Psalm 119 is about? It is a love song to the commands of God. That's a weird love song. Let me read some excerpts to you. 
From Psalm 119, I'll read Baith. If you don't know what that means, look at Psalm 119 and you'll discover it quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Blessed are they who keep his statutes, who seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Yahweh. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes. As one rejoices in great riches, I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Do you think of God's commands that way? Do they capture your heart? Do you dream about them at night? Listen to pay. If you don't know what that means, look in Psalm 119. Your statutes are wonderful. I will obey them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me. Have mercy on me as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule in me. Redeem me from the oppression of men that I may obey your precepts. May your face shine upon your servant and teach me your decrees. Streams of tears flow from my eyes for when your law is not obeyed. Can you hear the way that a young man yearns for a young woman? The way that a young woman yearns for a young man, can you hear the emotion within it of someone whose heart is captured by the will and the way of God? This is how God has always wanted you to think about his commands, not a rule to oppress you. No, something that captivates you, that obsesses you, that you spend your days dreaming about going it is so out of my league, but if only, if only, are you with me? This is how you have to think if First John is going to make any sense to you. Because now that we have set the stage, I can read to you today where we find ourselves with First John chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse 3. For those of you who enjoy following along, let me share this with you. John writes to these, these early Christians, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, the love of God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Now, 
Beloved, he says. I know it might say dear friends, but it actually says beloved here. Check other translations. It's amazing that the one who is the disciple loved by Jesus now passes it on and says you are the beloved too. I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you've heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him, Jesus, and you. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded to him. And then he busts some rhymes. He says, I write to you, dear children or beloved, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, beloved, because you have known the father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. I think we need verse 2. All right. He chases it by saying this. And it's where I'll leave it today. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful nature, the lust of the eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, it comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But the person who does the will of God lives forever. I'll say it again. The person who does the will of God lives forever. Or maybe to use Jesus' phrase, the person who does the will of God has eternal life. The person who does the will of God has the life of the age to come. You could put it any way you want. But if you were following in that, maybe what you see John doing is he setting up criteria He's setting up a distinction between two different kinds of people. People of light and life, to borrow some of his language, and people of darkness and death. And what he does throughout this letter is he sets up distinctions between how you can tell who is a person of light and life and who is a person of darkness and death and how you can even evaluate yourself to ask the question, am I a person of light and life or am I a person of darkness and death? And I know what some of you are thinking. There is a common Christian cliche. Well, no one can judge another person's heart. Well, I would agree. But that's not what John is saying. John is actually saying the exact opposite. He's saying you can know who is a person of light and life, and you can know who is a person of darkness and death, and I know what you're saying, but I know my cliche, and I know what I'm saying. The Bible trumps your cliche. John is setting up a distinction, and I think it makes us uncomfortable. It certainly makes me uncomfortable, not only because I don't want to judge another human being, as I know is the case for many of you. 
And I certainly know it makes me uncomfortable because I don't want to get it wrong. Because in my limited perspective, I might think it's one way when in fact it is the other. And that is good wisdom to remember. But I think it would be an equal mistake to toss it out completely when the Bible speaks about it so clearly. And I think above all, it makes me uncomfortable because I don't want to know. Because I don't want Jesus to draw a line in the sand. And I don't want to realize in clear, plain language that I am on the wrong side of that line. I would rather leave it to ambiguity. Oh, Lord, I'm just hoping and trusting despite what I might not want the Bible to say. How about you? You find yourself in the same? Maybe. But what John does throughout this letter is he draws a distinction. And he'll do it over and over again and give a whole bunch of different criteria, not just one. And last week, Todd shared this, that people of light and life confess their sin and walk in God's light, while people of darkness and death deny their sin. They claim to have fellowship with God, but walk in darkness. Today, John gives us two more criteria. And I hope that you caught them. He says, people of light and life know God because they obey God and love others. People of darkness and death claim to know God, but live how they want and hate their brothers. Do you like the first one better than the second one? Can I just ask? And then he just rounds it out with a third and I'll put it on the screen and leave it there today. Near the end, he says, people of light and life, they're in the world, but they renounce the world. But people in darkness and death embrace the world. Now let me take Proverbs and interpret this for you. I think what John is saying is that people of light in life are captivated by God. And by nature of being captivated by God, you are captivated by pleasing him, serving him, listening to him, obeying him. It is not about a set of rules for its own sake that we bring to some kind of metric to see if I'm scoring 60%, 80%, or if I finally got 100. No, it is an attitude and a perspective that says people of light and life who have been born again are fundamentally people who pant, who thirst, who fantasize, who dream about God and serving him, pleasing him, obeying him. This is what God sparks in the heart of someone who has been gripped by his spirit and born again. People of light and light. You'll know them because they're chasing after it. Obeying God. And I know what you might be thinking here today. You might be thinking things like this. I know it says a person of light and life is, is supposed to renounce the world, but the fact is I love the world. 
I love it a lot. It brings me joy. It brings me meaning. I love, I love tasting it and seeing it and living in it. I love the creation that God has made, and I love the opportunities it gives. I love the complexity of it. I love the culture. I love the, the, I love the fiber of what it is. I hear you. I'm with you. I do too. But it doesn't let me dismiss what God has to say or what he has to say to you. I know what you might be thinking. I know that people of light and life are marked by people, are marked by obeying God, by loving their brother. Biologically, but also metaphorically, right? But I don't love them. If I'm being honest, I don't, right? I don't love that guy. I don't love that person I work with. I don't love who lives next door. I don't love that mom or that kid at school. I don't love my principal. I don't love my boss, Phil, in the blank. Truth be told, I hate them. Can't stand them. They drive me nuts. They are all wrong from top to bottom, aren't they? What do I do? What do I do as someone who's coming up against these words, finding my, I, myself on the outside, believe me, I hear you. I hear you today. If you're sitting here wondering, and if you're saying to yourself, I know that people of light in life are people who are captivated by God, but the fact is I'm not. The fact is he's really boring to me. The fact is he doesn't do much for me beyond provide me an insurance policy. He doesn't capture my heart. I don't fantasize him. I'm not intoxicated by him. I'm not chasing after him. I'm not panting after him. I'm not writing in my notebook little hearts with his initials and mine. I'm not hoping he'll notice me. I'm not hoping he'll capture. You know, I, I hear what you're saying today. What does that mean for a person like you? How do you fall in love? How do you start to find him attractive? I've been thinking a lot about that this week. I think it might start here. Considering it all from a different perspective. Think about it on different terms. What if your prayer life was to turn into something that looked like this. Lord, I don't feel it. But I want to. Lord, I'm not even sure that I want to. But I know that you want me to and maybe that's enough. Lord, help me to be captivated by you. Do you ever pray that way? What if it starts just by thinking that way? Just by approaching God that way. Not so much as a concept or idea, but like a young woman to a young man who captivates your heart and asking him to help you. 
Maybe it starts by approaching it this way. Lord, I know you've, you've commanded me to do a lot of things. Lord, I know I don't even have to look in this whole book. I could just look in John 2 and it says, renounce the world, whatever that means, and love my brother, whatever that means. Lord, I don't know. Help me. Help me. Help me to identify what I have fallen in love with in this world more than you. Help me change my heart in that. Help me, God, to see the bitterness that I have for this person in my life or the contempt with which I hold them or the complete apathy with which I view them. And Lord, help stir something in me for them even if they are my enemy. Do you ever pray that way? Do you ever think that way, talk to God that way? Maybe it starts right there. Maybe it looks like this. Lord, I know I'm not doing this. Lord, I know you're calling me to this, but there ain't no way. Lord, I'm going to do it. This is crazy. I'm going to do it against all my better judgment. God, I'm just going to do it, and this is scary. Lord, for the first time in my life, I'm actually going to live by faith. And then you start to obey. Maybe it starts with one thing. And going, God, help me in this. God, protect me in this. God, save me in this. God, show me in this why this is a better way. Maybe it starts right there. For those of you whose hearts are not captured by God, that is not a write-off by God on you. It is an invitation to go from darkness and into life, to go from death and into life. And God is holding out his arms wide. And maybe you're here today and you're hearing this. And you're going, but man, I butch this. I screw this up. I fluctuate. I go back to my old ways again and again. Well, maybe it's going right back through the front door of all criteria. That people of light in life confess their sins. They don't try to hide them. And maybe it starts by going, God, you know what a mess I've made again. You know what lives within me. Forgive me, God, I'm sorry. Because I know this is not the right way to treat you. Maybe you're here today and you're downplaying it. You're measuring yourself against other people and not the commands of God, going, I ain't that bad. I carry a job. I'm pretty stable. I'm doing well in life. People like me. Maybe if I'm speaking to you today, it's realizing the danger of the path you're on and looking at God's distinctions for what truly makes you a person of light in life and going another path. Way. Jesus says this, and it's as equally terrifying as that opening passage in the video that we shared today. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, and many walk upon it. But narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few Find it. What John is showing you is exactly what that road looks like and how to know if you're on it. And may I just encourage you
may you hear the invitation of Jesus on my voice today. If you are on the wrong road, Jesus invites you right now to take the other one. Come to him. Tell him. And start walking that new road. The one less traveled. Right here, right now, which he is on today.